our reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 1, uh, and we will read, I think we'll just read the whole chapter. We'll read Hebrews chapter 1. This is the Word of God. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world's who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, it's December, and so all month long, we are turning our attention to the idea of Emmanuel, God with us. And this is a, a promise and a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Now, it was repeated and interpreted for us in the first chapter of Matthew, where it is applied to Jesus, the Christ, the, the anointed one, the Messiah promised throughout the Old Testament. And so two weeks ago, we focused on the first word of the phrase, God with us, uh, looking at the deity of Christ. Uh, he is eternally very God of very God, of the same substance with the Father and the Spirit, omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful, and most of all, holy, holy, holy. That is Christ. He is the eternal God. But then last week, we focused on the idea of God with us, and we looked at the humanity of Christ that he is very man of very man, made of the substance of his mother, according to the flesh. Two natures, the divine and the human, perfectly united in the person of the Son. The two natures are distinct, unmixed, but inseparable. In the union of these two natures, in the one person of the Son, it enables and it qualifies him to serve as the mediator of the new covenant, the only mediator between God and men. 
We've already read a few passages this morning uh, concerning the mediator and the new covenant. And these passages are important to help us clarify our understanding of why we need a mediator and what a mediator does and why it had to be the incarnate Christ. As we examine our text in Hebrews 1 this morning, I want us to see how Christ executes this office as mediator and what it means for us in our lives. Let's begin with why we need a mediator at all. We need a mediator because our sin separates us from God. More than that, it puts us at odds with God. He's our creator. He is our owner. He has authority over what he has made. But our sin is rebellion against his rightful authority, against his perfect authority. Our sin makes us rebels against God, and not the good kind of rebels in like a rock and roll sort of way, but rebels in the worst sort of traitors against a rightful authority. Paul says in Romans that our sin makes us enemies of God. If we're to know peace at all in our spirits, we need someone to stand between us and the God that we're at war with and to mediate that peace. We need a mediator. Job expressed this well, saying that settling accounts with God was impossible because, he says, for he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. See, Job says, he's, he's God, and I'm just a man. How am I supposed to go to court against him? How am I supposed to settle accounts with him? There's not even anyone that can mediate between us who can have authority over both parties. Who can have authority over God? It's impossible. We need a mediator. And this is what a mediator does. A mediator stands between two parties who are at odds with one another, and he, he brings them together. He reconciles them so that they can be at peace with one another. And so when it comes to our relationship with God, we, we need a mediator who can somehow satisfy the demands of God's holy justice, who can somehow have the authority to speak to God on our behalf someone who can procure for us from God his mercy and his grace. The problem is finding someone with the requisite holiness to stand before a perfectly holy and righteous God and at the same time represent us in our humanity. Who could do this? Well, the answer is only the God-man, Jesus Christ Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, we have to be careful when we read a text like this. It says the man, Christ Jesus, is our mediator. But our particular Baptist forefather, Nehemiah Cox, 
was careful to point out that at times the scripture speaks in such a way that what is proper to the person as such, considered in both natures, is attributed to one nature, as in 1 Timothy 2.5. He was not a mediator as man only, nor as God only, but as God-man in one person. Nehemiah Cox's point is that it wasn't Christ in his human nature who was the mediator, nor was it Christ only in his divine nature who was the mediator. It was those two natures united in the person of the Son that enabled him to mediate between God and man. Jesus is not some neutral party who steps in between us and God. Rather, he is God the second person of the Trinity, the Son in his relationship to the Father. Verse 3 of our text, to being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. See, he has standing with God because he is God. He has authority over all things because he is the creator. At the same time, he is the Son of Man, the covenant head of a new humanity, the Lord of the church. He doesn't stand between God and men. He is both God and man in his own person. His human nature, being the same as ours, is able to act as a representative of and in our place as a substitute. His human nature, being sinless, is able to act representative of and in our place as an acceptable substitute in the eyes of God. His divine nature sustained that human nature throughout his life in the flesh so that that human nature remained sinless. His divine person rendered the work performed through his human nature, namely his death on the cross, of infinite value. His death on the cross was not of infinite value because he was a human. It was of infinite value because that human nature that died on the cross was perfectly united to the Son, the eternal Son of God, the infinite God. Therefore, his sacrifice was of infinite value. Both natures working together in the person of the Son accomplished our redemption. Only Christ could do this work of the mediator. Galatians spoke of the law being given through angels by the hand of a mediator speaking about Moses in the covenant of law in the Old Testament. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. The mediator needs to mediate for both parties. Hebrews speaks of Moses as the mediator of the Old Covenant, but Christ as the greater Moses, as the mediator of the New Covenant, because he is the eternal Son of God and the Son of Man. He's born in time, under the law. He alone can mediate for both parties, reconciling us to himself, in himself. So in this way, Christ is the fulfillment of this promise of Emmanuel, God with us. He is with us as God and as man, and he is with us as our mediator. So then we we ask, well, how does Christ accomplish this work of mediating between us and God? Well, the answer lies in his taking on three offices in his uh, incarnation. 
And these are offices that are not new to Christ. We see these all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. These are offices that Adam held in the garden. Adam was given the word of God with instructions to pass on that word to his wife and to his offspring. He was to teach others what God had commanded him. This is the office of a prophet. At the same time, Adam was put in the garden, which functioned as a temple, and told to tend and to keep it. That's the language of the priesthood. It's the exact same Hebrew words that are used throughout the Old Testament regarding the work of the Levites and the priests in the temple. And Adam was the head of humanity. He was the the federal head of all mankind, instructed to take dominion over the earth, a kingly office. But Adam failed in all three of these offices. Eve did not accurately recall the words of God when she was tempted by the devil. It was a failure of Adam's prophetic office to pass on to her what God had said. The serpent entered the garden and and deceived and told lies. This was a failure of Adam's priestly office to tend and keep the garden and see to its purity. What happens then? The serpent takes dominion over man takes them captive to do his will, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2.26. It's a failure of Adam's kingly office to take dominion. Subsequent to this, we see all three of these offices divided up in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel. We have prophets who speak the word of God to God's people. We have priests who tend to the worship of the tabernacle and the temple. And we have kings who rule over the nation. But all three of these offices come back together in the person of Christ. Moses had promised us another prophet, a greater prophet than he was. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. What happens on the Mount of Transfiguration? God tells Peter, John, and James This is my son. Hear him. Christ is the greater Moses. In his sermon in Acts chapter 3, Peter quotes this verse from Deuteronomy and applies it to Christ. Christ is the prophet that was promised to come. He is the very word of God in the flesh. The book of Hebrews is clear that Christ has taken up the office of priest Not according to the law, for he was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. But he has a different sort of priesthood, one that is modeled on the character of Melchizedek back in Genesis. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 16 and 17 says that Christ has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Hebrews is quoting from Psalm chapter 110, which again, Peter quotes in his sermon in Acts 2 and applies it to Christ. Here's what Psalm 110 says in context, verses 1 through 4. The Lord did say unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes a stool whereon thy feet may stand. The Lord shall out of Zion send the rod of thy great power in midst of all thine enemies. Be thou the governor. A willing people in thy day, 
of power shall come to thee, and holy beauties from morn's womb thy youth like dew shall be. The Lord himself hath made an oath, and will repent him never. Of the order of Melchizedek thou art a priest forever. Christ fulfills the office of high priest for his people. But we also see in that psalm a reference to the office of his kingship. He rules. Christ is the king. Now, of course, his office as king is one that we readily celebrate at Christmas time. He's descended, according to the flesh, from the line of David, of the tribe of Judah. God raised him up to sit on that throne forever. The angel tells Mary in Luke chapter 1, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Of these three offices of prophet, priest, and king, they they come together in the person of Christ and they work together to accomplish the mediation between God and men. Our confession puts it this way in chapter 8, paragraph 9. This office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, and may not be, either in whole or in any part thereof, transferred from him to any other. There is one mediator between you and God, Christ Jesus. Not a preacher, not a priest, not a pope, not a dead saint. Jesus is the only mediator between you and your creator. He's the only one who can fulfill all three offices of prophet, priest, and king. But the question is, why? Why these three offices? Why are they so important? Well, our text here in Hebrews 1 covers each of these three offices in the first five verses. Look at verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. See, in former times, God spoke through the prophets. Even Abraham was said to be a prophet at one point. Moses was a prophet. He spoke the word of God to God's people. Primarily, we think of Moses and the law. But the law was God's words to his people. And then we have Samuel and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and the 12 minor prophets and, and others who didn't get their own books named after them. The job of a prophet in the Old Testament was primarily to speak the word of God to the people, to proclaim it. And Hebrews tells us that in these last days, that is from the first advent of Christ until his return at the end of the age, we're in the last days. And in these last days, the manner of God speaking to men is by his son. Christ is the prophet because he's more than just a man speaking God's words. He is the eternal word of God in human flesh speaking as a man. Scripture tells us in Ephesians that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. See, the other foundation stones are laid in place and dependent upon the cornerstone. The prophets and the apostles are dependent upon Christ 
as the chief cornerstone. They spoke the word of God as it was revealed to them by the Spirit of Christ. It's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.11. It was the Spirit of Christ that revealed the word of God to the prophets and the apostles. But Christ is the word of God made flesh, in whom, it says in Colossians 2.3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We need Christ as our prophet. We need his prophetic office because our sin has rendered us ignorant. Ignorant of the love of God, ignorant of the person of God, void of the fellowship of God, ignorant of the way of salvation. Creation around us declares the glory of God, but it doesn't tell us how to be reconciled to God. It doesn't reveal to us the way of salvation. For that, we need the self-revelation of God in Christ through the Scriptures. Christ speaks God's Word to us in the Scripture by the illumination of His Spirit. He speaks all things that are necessary for salvation and for the Christian life. But particularly, Christ teaches our hearts. Our hearts are, are deep wells that we, we, we can't easily know our own heart, let alone the heart of another person. But the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Christ, in his prophetic office through the Scriptures, removes the veil of our ignorance shines the light of his truth and his glory into the dark recesses of our hearts. He enables us to see our sin, our our great and desperate need for repentance and for his work as our priest to cleanse us from our sin. Other teachers can speak to the ears. At best, maybe they speak to our mind. But Christ speaks to our heart. A preacher can explain the scriptures to you, can give you the light of truth, but only Christ can give you a love for the truth. A teacher, a preacher, an elder, a parent can teach you what you ought to believe, but only Christ can teach your heart to believe. We need Christ as our prophet. Beloved, humble yourselves before him. Ask him to speak to your heart, to illuminate your heart with the light of his word, to renew it after his image, to reveal your sin, and to work his grace of repentance in you. But know also that Christ's teaching does not end with the shedding of the light of truth on our sin. He continues to speak And he speaks hope to our souls. He teaches us of the glory that is to come in his presence forever. For we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 18. Christ as a prophet speaks of the good things to come in the eternal kingdom to those who believe his word, who trust in his work, and who confess his rule as king. 
To have the eternal Son of God as your prophet and your teacher is a great honor and a blessing. Many hear the word preached, but do not have Christ as their prophet. And so despite hearing the word proclaimed and preached to them, they remain in their ignorance. If you can say with the man in John chapter 9, one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see, then you have been taught salvation by Christ. And for that, you should be eternally thankful. Christ executes his office as mediator by his work as the word of God come in the flesh, revealed in the scriptures, illuminated in our souls by his spirit. God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. But Christ's work of mediation is not limited to simply speaking to men as the word of God, but he also works on behalf of men as our great high priest. Look at verse 3 in our text. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ as our high priest is offered one final satisfactory sacrifice for sins, himself. A sinless man, he was able to be an acceptable sacrifice As the Son of God, his sacrifice was infinitely valuable. Even if every person who had ever lived were to repent and receive forgiveness, the offer of salvation made in the gospel, still the value of Christ's sacrifice would not be exhausted. He is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal and infinite Son, perfect in holiness, glorious in righteousness, the pearl of great price, the Lamb of God. And he offered himself in the place of his people. Hebrews 9, verse 26, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is why he came. That's why he was born, so that he might offer himself as a sacrifice in our place. As our priest and our sacrifice, he has perfectly satisfied the righteous demands of the law. First, in his earthly life, he actively obeyed the law and everything that it commanded in order to, as he said in Matthew 3.15, fulfill all righteousness. This is the righteousness of the law, which we spoke of last week, which is imputed or accounted to us when we have faith and trust in Christ. He obeyed the law for us. But secondly, by his passive obedience in his death, our sin is imputed to him. And he suffered the penalty which the law demands for sins. See, Christ suffered the pains of the law in his human nature. And as Thomas Watson, the Puritan, put it, the altar of Christ's divine nature sanctified the sacrifice of his human nature and made it of infinite value. The incarnation was necessary to the completion of Christ's priestly offering. And though we celebrate it with joy at Christmas time, it should cause us to pause and reflect upon the heinous nature of our sin. 
Sin led to Adam's banishment from the garden. Sin led to the fallen angels being cast into hell. But far worse than these things, sin led the eternal Son of God to veil his glory, humble himself, take on flesh, shed his blood, suffer, and die in our place. The need for Christ to be born should cause us to look at our own sin with loathing, to recognize the blackness and the evilness of it. It should drive us to hate our sin with a holy hatred. We should not take joy in our sin, which caused our Lord to be born a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But in spite of the reason why he was born, Christ, we are told, took joy. He took joy in what he was accomplishing. He endured the suffering of the cross for the joy that was laid before him. And so we can take joy in his priestly work on our behalf. Even while we take joy in his birth, the incarnation, the miracle of the word becoming flesh, and even while that causes us to view our sin with new understanding and a new hatred, it should cause us to rejoice in the work that he has accomplished. It is only the sacrifice of his blood that has made us clean. No works of our own could satisfy the demands of God's holy, just, and righteous, perfect law. Only the sacrifice of a spotless sacrifice, the Lamb of God, could atone for our sin. And in offering himself, Christ acted as both the Lamb and the priest. He, he put himself between us and the wrath of God against sin in order that he might bring us to God, washed, cleansed, reborn, remade, righteous and holy in his sight. But his priestly work doesn't end there. It doesn't end with the sacrifice on the cross. It continues. For what does it say in verse 3? When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ's priestly work continues in his ongoing intercession for his people. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high. It is seated there that he is able to intercede continually on behalf of his people. Romans chapter 8 verse 34 says, It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Just as Christ as a high priest would uh, offer the sacrifice of himself in the same way that the priests in the Old Covenant had offered sacrifices in the temple, that was not the limits of their duties. The priests also offered intercession and prayers for the nation and for the people. And so too, Christ continues to intercede for us as our high priest. Hebrews points out three aspects of his priesthood that qualify him to intercede on our behalf. First, we see that he is a holy high priest. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. See, Christ knew our sin. He knew the weight of it on the cross. He knew the, the wrath of God poured out against sin. 
But Christ never knew sin in the act. He was without sin, blameless, altogether holy. No other high priest in the history of the world can claim that. All other priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves as well as for the people. Only Christ could offer himself as a sacrifice for his people, for he alone is holy. Second, Hebrews tells us that he is faithful. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He is faithful and true. He will not fail to make intercession for us. He can't forget to intercede on our behalf. He can't not know about sins that need to be interceded for. We can trust that in his work as our intercessor, he accomplishes it to perfection. We can trust our very lives to his intercession He alone is a faithful high priest. No other high priest could ever be trusted so thoroughly to intercede in every detail and at all times. In speaking on our behalf, Christ does so as a man speaking to God. In his prophetic duties, he speaks as God to men. In his priestly duties, he speaks as perfect man to God on behalf of men. But he speaks faithfully, interceding for us. He speaks with mercy, having known our life in the flesh. He is a merciful and faithful high priest, interceding with the Father on our behalf. And he does so continually, for he never dies. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 through 25. There were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. His priesthood is unchanging, it's unending, and therefore his intercession for us is unending. It's unceasingly perfect. It accomplishes salvation to the uttermost. His session at the right hand of the majesty on high is everlasting, And so is his intercession for his people. And by his intercession, Christ not only applies the blood of the covenant to cover our sins, perfecting us in God's sight, but he also perfects our prayers and our service to God. Christ stands before the Father as our covenant head, representing the new humanity, those who are members of the new covenant, who have been reborn in his image. He is a perfect man. His human nature is a perfect worshiper of God. And as our covenant head, his worship becomes ours so that he perfects our praises and our service to God, presenting them to God, cleansed and perfected in his person. We come together on Sunday morning and we sing, we pray we, we preach, we're worshiping our God, and we don't do it perfectly. Our hearts are not pure, our, our words are not without fault. Yet Christ stands between us and God, perfecting our praises, mixing the incense of his perfect worship with our offerings and offering up our prayers as a sweet perfume before the Father in heaven. 
Christ in his priestly role offers an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. And then he sits at the right hand of the Father and continues his priestly work, interceding for us with the Father, perfecting our praises before God. This should give us confidence, confidence to come before the throne of God in prayer, knowing that however imperfect our prayers may be, when they reach the ears of the Father, they have been perfected by Christ. However lacking our words may be, however ineffective our singing may be, Christ has finished it. He's perfected it. So when it comes to the Father, he receives it with gladness, this perfect praise and perfect worship. Christ has cleansed it as our great high priest interceding for us as only the mediator between God and men could do. But finally, Christ accomplishes his work as mediator in his office as king. And, and, and like I said, this is the office we most readily celebrate at Christmas. We speak of the birth of the king. We consider the royal nature of the gifts brought by the, the magi, the praise of the angels, the joy to the world at the birth of the Christ child. He was born of the flesh in the line of David, destined to sit on the throne forever. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4 says, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. His inheritance is given to him. Why? Because he is the son of the most high. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. As the Son of God, He is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah tells us. He is the heir of all things. God will make His enemies His footstool and subdue all. Every knee shall bend and bow before Him in worship. In Revelation, it tells us that He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As the King of the eternal kingdom, Christ is King both to His people and to His enemies. Of his people, Christ is the king and rules his subjects absolutely both now and forever. The law is his. It comes from him. It binds us in obedience to our king. It's an easy thing to claim Christ as our teacher, as our intercessor. But how many are willing to claim him as their king, to rule over them? How many are eager to bow the knee in obedience to his perfect law? But look how Christ executes all three offices simultaneously. As king, he commands our obedience. As prophet, he teaches us obedience. And as priest, he perfects our obedience. He's not just our king. He is simultaneously, perfectly, and everlastingly our prophet, our priest, and our king. Christ rules his people not with the law only, but with divine love. As a king, he is merciful. He is the prince of peace. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he is also the lamb of God. His royal scepter is dipped in the honey of the word. He rules both by precept and by promise. He works by his word in our hearts to cause us to love him because he has first loved us. His kingship is not despotism, but benevolence. 
He is a king of mercy, a king of peace, a king of love, a king of grace, and a king of glory. Worship him as such a king. It's a great honor and a great delight to serve the king of glory. Psalm 24, 8 through 10 asks, Oh, who is the king that in glory draws near? The Lord, mighty Lord of the battle is here. Oh, gates, lift your heads. Ancient doors, lift them high. The great king of glory to enter draws nigh. This great king of glory, oh, who can he be? The Lord God of hosts, the king of glory is he. Christ is the king of glory, and he presently rules his people. This is a present spiritual reality for us. This is not something we have to look forward to in the future. Christ reigns now. He is our king. Many, I am afraid, are of the opinion that Christ will one day rule, but he currently is sitting in a distance, watching and waiting while Satan rules in the world. But scripture is clear. Satan has been cast down. His power is limited by the decree of Christ. He is bound. The nations now turn to Christ in faith, both Jew and Gentile alike. In former times, national Israel had the revelation of God in the scriptures, while the rest of the nations were lost in the darkness of unbelief. But now he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. This is our present reality. Those who have Christ as their prophet, priest, and king are no longer under the power of darkness, but have become citizens of the kingdom here and now. Christ reigns on high. And because he reigns, we have hope. Things may look dim in the world around us. Darkness may appear to triumph. Discouragement may come knocking at your door. But we know that Christ sits on the throne even now. He is at the right hand of the majesty on high. All authority is his in heaven and on earth. The kings of this earth, the spiritual forces of darkness, have no authority except that which Christ allows them. The hearts of men, though they may not acknowledge him as Lord, are in his hand, and he turns them whithersoever he wills. Even beyond that, The scriptures tell us in Acts chapter 17 that Christ has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Where you live, when you live, the fact that you continue to breathe, that is all under the command and the sovereign rule of Christ. He reigns supreme over all. One day soon he will return in triumph with the host of heaven to judge the living and the dead, for he is king over all, and all must give an account to him. Many are willing to acknowledge Christ as a great teacher, but unwilling to own him as the word become flesh who speaks with power because he is the eternal and almighty God. Others may be willing to consider Christ in his priestly office, enamored with the work of the Spirit, but unwilling to follow his priestly example of suffering, death to self. Still others rally at the thought of Christ as king, as ruler. They like the idea of law, 
thinking vainly that they can keep the law in their own power, not seeing that Christ as king not only commands our obedience, but he enables it. He perfects it through his word and spirit and by his all-powerful love. Few consider that he is always forever and simultaneously prophet, priest, and king, never one without the other, mighty in speech, ruling by dying, full of grace and truth. Christ is our mediator, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't simply perform the duties of the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is in his whole person, prophet, priest, and king, perfectly, always and forever, acting in all three offices as our mediator and covenant head, clothed with dignity and power, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the Son, the Son of God and the Son of Man, and He is the heir of all things to His church. Let's pray.